Let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis, chapter 28. Once again, I repeat what I did yesterday. I will try and and uh, project my voice as ably as I can or as loudly as I can. But if you can't hear, move forward. Still plenty of seats down here. And if you don't want to move forward or don't want to hear, just stay back. Genesis chapter 28. Now we've got a long portion I'd like to cover this morning of several chapters, so I won't read it in its entirety, but I will read selectively through portions of this particular section of the book of Genesis as we look again at the life of Jacob. Genesis chapter 28, we remember that in verse 1, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people, and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee, to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. And Isaac sent away Jacob, and he went to Padan Aram, unto Laban, son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Drop down, if you would, into verse 10. Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south, and in thee... And in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. There's a young man here. I think he's sitting up front, maybe. Were you sitting here yesterday? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right, yeah. Who has that Bible? You have that Bible? Let me see. Hold your Bible up for me. Oh, I like that. What does that Bible say about this chapter? What's the title to it? You got that place? Genesis 20, what? 28. 
about Jacob and the ladder. Right in the front. A pillow and a promise. I'm going to get me one of these uh, young people Bibles. I'm looking at it yesterday. If you were here yesterday, the, the, the story was about, or the Bible account was about, you know, Jacob and uh, one big happy family and Esau and the deceiving and all that. But his title said, A Hairy Trick. I like that. Well, that's great, if, if not for nothing else but sermon titles. I mean, you can get a lot out of one of those. So I appreciate the young folks bringing their Bibles and appreciate some of those titles that I found in there looking yesterday. I'll be scouring it more. But we come this morning to this account of Jacob. I want to suggest to you that in these chapters we have basically three things that are going on. Well, there's a lot of things going on, but I guess to summarize them... We have Jacob and God, we have Jacob and his wives, and we have Jacob and Laban. Someone has suggested that in chapter 28 we have concerning Jacob how God saved him. In chapter 29 through 31, how God subdued him. And then in chapter 32 how God sanctified him. So we want to look at this broad section of Scripture and see the lessons that are found here. The first one is the lesson of the ladder, Jacob's ladder. Now one of the things that, again, as I was reading here, I noticed is that in verse 13, as the Lord appears to Jacob, he says, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac. Now, what will that phrase say in other places? We've already seen it, haven't we? Someone know? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. But it doesn't say that here. I just noticed that. I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac. But he will become the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a good question to ask. Is he your God? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? It's not enough for, for you to be able to say, Well, he's my parents' Lord. Or he was my grandmother's Lord. Or my grandfather knew him question is, do you know Him? Can you say He's your Lord, your Savior, your Jesus, that you know Him? And Jacob, for the first time recorded in Scripture, is going to meet the Lord. So before this, we don't have any account of Jacob personally meeting the Lord. And so let's look and see how that occurs. Jacob comes upon a certain place. The sun was setting. Remember, he's fleeing from his brother uh, Esau, who wants to kill him. He's going off into a strange land on his own, apart from his house and his father and his mother and everything else. 
And as he comes to this certain place, he takes the stones and puts them down for a pillow to lay down and sleep. And as he sleeps, he sees this vision. And the vision is of a ladder that is set up on the earth, the top of it reaching up to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Now, I don't think it was a ladder like you climb at Half Dome that he saw. In my mind, it, it almost seems more like an escalator. Uh, that's what it shows there. See, I'm getting me one of those. You better hang on to yours. An escalator. In other words, ascending and descending upon it in a rather continuous motion, the angels of God up and down, ascending and descending. And the Lord stood above it or beside the ladder and then gives this revelation to him and these promises. He gives him three promises, really, or three things that it communicates to him. One in verse 13 concerning the land. Two in verse 14 concerning his seed or his descendants. And three concerning Jacob personally. I want you to stop for a moment and just to absorb this. We think about what has just taken place in the chapter before of Jacob scheming, conniving, lying, all the rest, and now fleeing and in distress and running from his brother, his conscience, what must have been going through it, and the fear possibly that he had. And the Lord appears to him. And the Lord says to him, I am the God of thy father Abraham. And the God of Isaac. And inasmuch as he says, I am going to give to you that land. Think of it, Jacob. And, and your seed, just like I said to Abraham, in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Can you imagine God saying that to a man? And Jacob personally, I am with you. I, I will keep you. Everywhere you go, I'll keep you. And I, I will not leave you. And I will bring you again unto the place that I, I'm promising you about. And I will not stop until I have done that which I have spoken to you. Take it to the bank. What a tremendous revelation. Old Testament. And yet that same one that appeared to Jacob says to everyone who knows him through his son and knows the Lord Jesus as Savior, as Jamie brought out to us in those gospel passages, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And as we're told in the book of Philippians, as it will be illustrated in Jacob's life, that work that I have begun in you, I will not let it go. I will perform it. I will finish it. I will complete it unto the very day of Christ. And he'll do whatever is necessary to bring us to that point of completion. He will not abandon the work that he has begun with you if you're a believer in Christ. And in one sense, Jacob becomes a tremendous 
example, if you will, or one that illustrates the grace of God. Why would God appear to a man like Jacob? There was nothing in his life, really, or his works to commend himself to God. It wasn't by Jacob's works, but through God's grace. It was a supernatural revelation that was given to Jacob. It was a revelation of God's grace and a revelation of God's government. Now, for your further study, many of you know and some of you may not, we often generally refer to a principle that we sometimes use in Scripture called the law of first reference or the law of first mention. And what that means is that the first time you find something mentioned in Scripture, generally it will help us define it. It will help us to understand that concept as it is found elsewhere in the Word of God. This is the first mention in Scripture of the house of God. You find it in verse 17. Jacob, when he awakes, says, This is none other than the house of God. In the Hebrew, that would be Bethel, the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The gate in Scripture was the place where business was conducted. It really was the center of local government, if you will. One that sat in the gate. I'll never forget going to Israel, and we passed a place in an area near what was called ancient Dan, and it was so clear that right at the concourse of these roads, at this city that had been excavated, right where the road uh, intersected, the junction of the road, there sat what looked like a throne, That was the gate of the city. It wasn't a thing that swung open and closed like we think of a gate. But one would sit there in that which looked like a throne, and that's where business was conducted. We find that elsewhere throughout Scripture. It is a a thing that symbolizes to us government. When you connect that with the house of God, the house of God, as we find it in the New Testament, is the place where God's government is conducted. It is connected with God's government. The house of God in the New Testament is the church of the living God, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And it is the very center of God's government. And I want to say this in a, in a way that I hope you understand. More important than what goes on in Washington, D.C., or in Ottawa, or in any of the places around the world, the centers of government, are the things that transpire at the central place of God's government, which is the house of God, His testimony, the local church on planet Earth. There is nothing more important, ultimately, that takes place than what transpires in that place of God's central government. It is vital. It is crucial. It is the house of God, the place of government. Jacob had a lot of lessons to learn. A man that now meets the Lord, but the Lord is going to have to do some work because there's still a lot of Jacob 
in Jacob. You remember the Lord Jesus one day met Nathanael. And He said to Nathanael, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And Nathanael responded, Well, you must be the Messiah. You must be the Christ. And He said, You're going to see greater things than these. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending, not upon a ladder, but upon the very Son of Man. Because the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the center of God's government, if you will. And so we have the revelation of the latter. But Jacob still had a lot of Jacob. And the thing that the Lord Jesus said to Nathanael is, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. An Israelite in whom there is no Jacob, if you will. Pardon the application there. And one day, as we'll see as we look at the great prophetic scheme and picture that's found here, ungodliness will be turned from Jacob. And Israel will be seen to be that character which will be expressed in their name, Prince with God. But there's still a lot of Jacob and Jacob at this point. And so when God reveals himself to grace in Jacob, as he rises up in the morning, he calls that place Bethel. And then Jacob says, such a deal I have for you. Here's what I'm going to do for you, God. I'm going to make a vow. And God, if you will be with me, wait a minute. Did I not just tell you I will be with you? And if you will keep me, but wait a minute, didn't I just get finished? And, and if you bring me back again, then you will be the Lord my God. And not only that, Lord, of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Oh, wasn't that, couldn't you see God just thinking, oh man, this is great. I'm getting a cut. (laughs) Still a lot of Jacob in Jacob. And Jacob's going to have to learn as we have to learn, as I have to learn. It's not so much what I can do for God. It's the work that He's doing in and through me. It's not so much what I can perform for Him. It's the response of my heart that, Lord, it's not just a tenth. You, you, Son of God, loved me. You gave yourself for me. A tenth? I have nothing. I am nothing without you. And Lord, as feeble as it is, as weak as it is, as insignificant as I am, all that I am, all that I have. In the language of Romans 12, I bring to the altar a living sacrifice. And present my very body and self to you by your mercies to be used according to your will. But Jacob's got a ways to go. I want to say just for a moment as we look at this ladder, this ladder showed the nearness of God. God is in this place, Jacob said. He's not far away. 
He's right there. Right there. And oh, how distorted our minds become about the reality of the nearness of the infinite and immense God. But the God who is right there. As close as we sometimes sing is the mention of His name. As the writer to the, as Paul says in Romans, if you just call upon His name, if you just believe in your heart, if you just confess with your mouth, you can be saved. And so what a revelation is given in the latter. And then in chapters 29 through 30 and, uh, and on, we realize that Jacob now, after he has met the Lord, enters God's school. God's school. And God's school sometimes, well, I suppose nowadays, I shouldn't say nowadays, I guess it's always been possible, but it seems like to me, nowadays in certain educational circles, school is not as difficult as it once was. Some teachers tell me they are not allowed to fail anybody. I find that interesting. School, if you're in higher levels of education, is never intended to be easy. It's difficult, at least for some of us, perhaps most of us. And the school of life is not an easy thing. You see, if we've got a lot of Jacob in us, God's going to have to do a lot of work on us. And He will use what I call sometimes sandpaper for the soul. Because He's got to smooth off the rough edges. Now, Dave would be more qualified than I to, to talk about this, but I never was good at woodworking. I love to work with wood. Love to cut it. Love to put it together. Love to make things. But there's one thing I hated. Sanding. <laughs> you know, it's such a tedious process. And sandpaper is such a, it's a weird concept. You take this beautiful piece of wood and you start with this kind of rough grit that really just destroys the surface of that wood. And then you go to a finer grit and a finer grit and you keep sanding until you bring out the luster and the and the beauty of that wood. You got to know the right sandpaper to use, the right grit. You got to apply the right pressure. And it looks at first like you're actually really messing the thing up. But if you know what you're doing, you bring out the beauty and the luster of that wood. And the Lord knows what He's doing. He knows the right grit to use on us. He knows the right pressure to apply and just where so that he smooths off the rough edges of the Jacob in us to ultimately to conform us to the image of his son. I heard once that somebody said making a sculpture isn't difficult. You got this big piece of rock and you want to make a lion. All you got to do is chisel away everything that doesn't look like a lion. <laughs> And God's doing that work on us. He's chiseling away everything that doesn't look like His Son. 
And one day the finished product will be seen. And he's not going to quit. He's not like me in woodwork. I work on something, and Wanda can tell you, I've got lots of projects I've started. <laughs> and a few I've finished. That's not the way the Lord is. And so Jacob's going to go through God's school. Jacob meets Rachel and Laban in chapters 29 and 30. And, and then we find that in meeting Laban, I want to suggest to you that Jacob meets Jacob in the mirror of Laban. He meets a man who is so much like him. And the, the story, part of the story of these chapters, 29 through 31, is the story of how they try to get over on one another. And one pulls one thing and one pulls another. But in it all, lessons that are learned. The first lesson was a real blow. Jacob saw Rachel, and it says in verse 18, he loved Rachel. And I'm going to tell you, she must have been some kind of woman in his eyes. Because he said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban says, oh, it's way better I give her to you than to somebody else. And so he served seven years. They seemed like a few days for the love he had for her. And at the end of those seven years, Jacob says, give me my wife. And Laban says, sure thing. They gathered everybody together. They had a big feast. And sometime in the night, he goes into the tent, and he wakes up in the morning, and it wasn't Rachel. <laughs> it was Leah. It was the firstborn, the older. And when he finds out what happens, he says, What have you done to me? Why did you trick me? Verse 25. And Laban says, Well, you know, Jacob, around here, we respect the rights of the firstborn. Ouch. <laughs> we respect the rights of the firstborn. Whoa. <laughs> and so Laban says, well, I tell you what, do another seven years. And then you get Leah. I mean, Rachel. And so he did. And then you get the big story, and this is really a complicated story. I have trouble keeping up with it sometimes. But what you're going to ultimately get is a man that has two wives, 12 sons and a daughter, from four different biological mothers. Okay? So you got, you got four different women who bear children to Jacob, 12 boys and a girl, you got uh, animosity between the two because who's having what, and it's hard to keep up with. And then, listen, I meet folks with big families. I don't know anybody who has a family with 12 boys. 12 boys. Can you imagine trying to keep harmony and unity with 12 boys? And not only that... Twelve boys that don't all come from the same mother. With a father and mothers that show favoritism to certain individuals. 
And if you think that's something, God is going to take those 12 boys and weld them into a nation. And if you think it was hard to keep those 12 boys together as a unit, what would God have to do to keep that nation together? And the story of the rest of the Old Testament will tell us not only was it not easy, it didn't always take place, did it? But it's a marvel, the miracle of not only of those 12 boys, but ultimately of the 12 tribes that would be the nation of Israel. And so you remember all the, if you've read this account, all the shenanigans, if you will, that that take place in the life of this family. And I want to just mention something else that I find very interesting, and I won't elaborate on it much except to say this. Ladies, in that day, it's not to minimize the miracle of childbirth, which is such a miraculous thing, but it is to say that if you were a woman, there was nothing more regular in life you know, that it was fairly, it wasn't a big, uh, it was important, but it wasn't like an earth-shattering event. Having children, that's what women did. It was their daily, their regular experience. But there's something unique about these children and the experience of these women. And I want the women, the ladies here, to grasp this. That when these children were born, it was the women who gave them their names. And if you look at that, you see in verse 32, for instance, of chapter uh, 29, Leah conceived, she bore a son, she called his name Reuben, for she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. These women named these boys from something they saw of God's dealing with them and their experience of God in their lives. Well, you say, okay, that's interesting. But do you know that when you get to that eternal dwelling place of the people of God, in the book of Revelation, where there's all kind of things that are difficult to understand, and you scratch your head and say, I don't know what that's going to look like, there's one thing that you'll be able to identify, because God has put it up in big neon lights, if you will. That when you enter the gates of that city, there are the names of the twelve boys. Where do those names come from? They came from those women. God took something out of the daily life experience of those women. And He produced something for His eternal glory even out of something, if you will, as commonplace as those women having children. And God looked at that daily experience and took it and put it across the gates of that city for everybody to see to display His eternal glory. Never underestimate the value of your experience of God in your daily, sometimes mundane, routine life. God values it. God values it. And what a significant thing that is. Ultimately, you know how the story carries on. Jacob, suffering consequences. Jacob, reaping the fruit of his nature. And an interesting thing. 
In the midst of all his difficulty, Jacob, or Israel, if you will, as he'll later be known, amassing wealth. And by the amassing of his wealth, infuriating the Gentiles around him. How did it happen? Everything was against him, Israel. And in the midst of all that difficulty and trial and people trying to get over on him, somehow Israel amassed great wealth. And the Gentiles didn't like it. And that story is told out at a higher key, isn't it? That somehow in the midst of this world, with everything against them, the Jewish people still have an ability to amass great wealth, which infuriates the folks around them. So what a picture we see here, and we'll look a bit more at that as we move along. You may want to read ahead into chapter 32 and some of those following chapters, but the story of this section, I, I would again say, has to do with God's school. And how once Jacob met the Lord, God really began that process of education and training and correction to bring him to the place where he wanted him ultimately to be. A lot of life's lessons are not easy, but they're profitable. And they yield the fruit, as the book of Hebrews tells us, of holiness and character like unto him. So may the Lord bless these thoughts to us as we consider Jacob in his life. Thank you.